Welcome to the Internet History Podcast. I'm your host, Brian McCullough. So, regular listeners will know that about a year ago I had Mike Slade on the pod, and we talked about Starwave and a bunch of early web stuff, but as you'll know if you listen to that episode, Mike was also a close confidant of Steve Jobs, and Steve asked him to come on for about six years, starting in the late 90s, as Steve's personal consigliere at Apple when Steve returned to Apple. And in that episode, we said that Mike needed to come back on the show and talk about all that stuff. And that's something that you guys have been strenuously requesting ever since that episode dropped. So today, here it is. Now that I've done enough research to do this conversation justice, today is Mike Slade telling the story of Steve Jobs' return to Apple. Mike Slade, thanks for coming back on the Internet History Podcast. Uh, my pleasure. It was uh, fun last time. So, right. We, 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 we teased last time that you needed to come back and, and tell some of your Apple stories, so that's what we're going to do today. Um, let's let's just start with uh, Steve asking you to join him back at Apple. Were you were you still at Starwave when when Apple bought Next? Yeah, what yeah what happened was Apple bought Next in late '96, and I was still at Starwave running it. And um, I had stayed in close touch with Steve after I stopped working at Next, and we saw each other a bunch and talked on the phone a lot. And I visited him a couple times in Palo Alto for various business trips, and then. Uh, in early 97, this deal closed where Disney bought part of Starwave and we became kind of a, um, like we were like, sort of like Czechoslovakia. We were part of Disney, but we were still independent. And, um, so I was the chairman and CEO of Starwave and I spent about half my time working with people at Disney on stuff and half my time at Starwave. And so I took some time off and then that fall I was on a, on a big long vacation in Turkey and Steve had by that time kind of become sort of the, he'd gotten rid of Emilio and he called me up and wanted me to run corporate marketing for Apple. They already had Phil Schiller running product marketing and they wanted me to, he wanted me to be all kind of his branding guy. And I would have loved to do it, but I couldn't really leave. I kind of had a bunch of handcuffs and I was uh, sort of in charge of this crazy complicated joint venture between Starwave and Disney and ESPN and ABC news. So I couldn't really come. And so I stayed in touch with him. And then finally through the, through most of 1998, we did all this complicated negotiating and eventually I was free at the end of 98. This complicated deal happened where uh, Disney bought out Paul and then flipped most of the company into InfoSeek. And we all became shareholders of InfoSeek and did well financially and, I was just a consultant at this point. So finally, in November of 1998, I was free, and I told Steve I was going to be free, and he wanted me to come work for him. And I said I couldn't really work there full-time because I had little kids at home and stuff. And so we agreed that I would work there part-time. So I joined his executive staff in November of 1998, and what, what I did most of the time was I'd come down to Apple 
gig, typically two days a week, sometimes one day a week, but usually two days a week. And I'd come down on Monday morning, and I'd usually go to five or six meetings in the two days with him. So I'd go to his Monday morning executive staff meeting, which went from 9 to about 12.30 usually. And that was me, Steve, Fred Anderson, the CFO, um, Nancy Heinen, the head of legal, a guy named Mitch Manditch who ran sales, a guy named Tim Cook who ran sort of supply and logistics, John Rubenstein who ran hardware engineering, uh, Avi Tavanian who ran software engineering, Phil Schiller who ran product marketing, me, and I think that was it. And, and I think that was it at the start. Your your role is basically just be consigliere and just like a sounding yeah, board? Yeah, you know, it's hard to imagine how little people uh, at a place like Apple got the internet in late 1998, but they were just sort of starting to figure it out. And so I was both a consigliere and kind of a guy who um, had no agenda. So I could give sort of an honest take on stuff without protecting any turf or anything. And Apple was a much different company then. There was no, there was no iPod and there was barely an iMac and there was no iBook yet. And the, a lot of their business was worrying about how many power Macs and power books they were selling and just trying to get it going. And so I went to basically five or six meetings each week. So I'd go to the staff meeting and, um, then oftentimes Steve and I would have lunch together because my office was right next to his. And then we'd wander around campus. We'd usually go visit Johnny in the design lab. And then there was a meeting every Monday afternoon with Avi's group. It was Avi and all of his direct reports who were designing Mac OS X. Mac OS X didn't exist yet in mm -hmm. late 1998. It was mm -hmm. still in the, they were still creating it. It was a very complicated piece of engineering because they had to combine the old Mac operating system and the next operating system into this new thing that ran old code and had new apps. So there was a lot of work being done on the user interface for it and all the other stuff for it. And so there was a meeting every week behind closed doors with all of Bobby's direct reports who included uh, Scott Forstall and a bunch of other guys who people know about, and I would help him do that. And then after that, I'd usually go uh, collapse because I'd been up since 4.30 <laughs> in the morning flying down. And then on Tuesday... There were usually a couple of meetings with this guy named Sina Tamad, and that's the other person who was a direct report, I forgot, who ran, originally he ran service, and then he, they created an apps division, and he started the apps division. So Sina created iMovie, iTunes, I, I, um, iPhoto, iDVD, et cetera. And we would do that meeting on Tuesday morning, and then often I would work on some other special projects, and then usually the ad agency came up either Monday afternoon or Tuesday afternoon, and I'd meet with them too. So that was Steve and Lee Clow and a guy named James Vincent who worked for Shad Day and me and often Phil Schiller, and we'd just work on whatever we were working on for advertising. And then I'd usually fly home after that. Well, before so that, we, that was my week. Before we get into into all the stories like the iPod and, and the, the iMac and all that stuff, just to back up a second because you knew him, um, in your opinion, did Steve always yearn to go back to Apple? Because he plays at Koi, of course, at the time, but do you – do you feel like he always wanted to go back? Uh, yes, uh, always. He always talked about it when I worked at Next. Always, always, always. Um, so from the very, you know, I worked at Next from early '91 until late '92, and he was always talking about Apple. Now, it's it's worth noting that Next's hardware strategy was intricately involved with Apple's hardware strategy. So Next's strategy was to use the same. CPU that Apple used and leveraged the Motorola relationship. And then their plan, they were always a step ahead of Apple because they were smaller. So each time a new rev of the 6830 or 40 came out, 
and then this new risk chip they were building, the 88110, was going to come out. Apple was slow, and Next was fast, and Next would beat them to it at whatever rev it was. So they were kind of integral, and they had some people who had worked at Apple and things like that. And, but yeah, he always thought that the people running Apple weren't doing a very good job, and he yearned for it, even though you know, Next's business was more kind of corporate-focused and consumer-focused in, in those days. We were selling to big corporations and the CIA and people like that and, and less to consumers. So he was always sort of torn by the fact that he had to worry about these corporate customers, even though his instincts were consumer. And, you know, I always thought he was put on this earth to sell things to consumers, not to corporations, always. Um, when so he, it's good that it worked out. When he, when he does come back and you're, you're sitting in on these meetings with him, I, I read, you know, early on, I read a scene where, you know, when he first gets there, Steve calls a big meeting with all the upper level management types. And he, he basically says to them, all right, go around the table, tell me who you are and, and what you can do for me. So was, was a lot, was the main part of the strategy at the very beginning, just finding who, who the, who the superstars are, who the bozos are, and, and then, and then arranging the talent and, and getting, getting Apple back in shape. Yeah, I visited a couple times in 97 or 98, I kind of forget which, before I came back to work there. And I remember meeting some people, like there was a guy who was there for a while who left in charge of marketing named Garena DeLuca, who Steve couldn't really make up his mind about. And so he went through a period of time where he was working with the old the old crew at Apple. But by the time I actually started working there, you know, most of those people I named on the exec team were either new or had worked at Next. So Avi and Rubenstein and Nancy Heinen and Sina Tamadin had all been next executives. And so I knew them, Steve knew them. And we all kind of like could finish each other's sentences. Um, Tim Cook was new to Apple and was 10 times better at what he did than the people who had been in charge of it. Like it was criminal how much better he was. They, they had done it so poorly. The sales guy had also come from next, Mitch Mandich. And so everybody kind of knew each other. And the only holdover from Apple was Fred Anderson. Um, and then Phil Schiller, had worked at the old Apple and then left and had been, he'd been at Macromedia for a while. And then there'd been this spinoff from next called firepower systems that John Rubenstein ran, uh, that Canon owned. And Phil was the head of product marketing for that. So everybody kind of knew each other. And so Phil was a huge Apple host. So anyway, yes, to answer your question, Steve said to me one time, look, and I'm sure he had said this to other people. My goal is half the people here are good and half are bozos. I've got to keep the good ones from leaving and get rid of the bozos as soon as possible. So I think every time he met with somebody, he was trying to figure out which, which bin to put them in, the bozo bin or the good worth keeping bin, right? And there were great people at Apple still, um, but many had left. And by then you had the first dot-com boom going on. So you had all these crazy valuations of stupid startups and stuff that you know people were tempted by. Well, if it's a if it's a process of finding the diamonds in the rough and also bringing in the the, the people he likes yeah. from next, but um, obviously one of the bigger diamonds in the rough is is Johnny. And um, do you were you around when when Steve discovers that? <laughs> no, by the time I got by the time I got there, uh, Steve had already figured out that he loved Johnny, mm -hmm. and so I, I mean I think I had heard from him anecdotally, but I wasn't around for those moments when he first met him. There was this computer they had. This was the funny story that they showed me, and I think it might be in one of the books. So the computer that Johnny designed before the iMac was this educational computer that was sort of a holdover from the last vestiges of Apple before Steve took over. That was a thing that internally was very similar to an iMac, but 
was looked like an iMac with like, you know, uh, boils and like, you know, the plague, like it was this giant bulbous thing with like every port known to man, parallel serial USB 1.0, you know, ADB keyboard, like the most complicated thing you've ever seen. And, um, removable this and you know every checklist item and it was huge and ugly but it had some design elements in it mostly around um uh dots and texture that were the sort of the precursor of the iMac and that's was the thing that Steve liked now you know the story you probably heard the story of the iMac which is that um it was supposed to be a network computer the world's most horrible right. idea right, right, right. and um they had built designed it as such and Steve was like, this is stupid. Nobody's going to buy one of these things. The Internet's too slow. They need a hard disk. And Fred Anderson famously said, the non-technical CFO said, why don't we just cram a hard disk in there and boot System 7 on it? And they all said, we can't do that. We can't cool it. And Steve said, sure we can, like that. You know, he's like, sure. So they had this impossible task that they managed to do. And that's why if you look at the first iMac, which is sort of a see-through computer, it's kind of ugly inside because it was kind of a hack job. Right. But a really good idea. Well, they and uh, they they uh, sort of sold that as is. Look, you can see the guts. How cool is that? Well, that's just because Johnny had clever ideas, and you know, Bondi Blue and everything. So by the time I got there, they had already shipped that thing, and they were trying to do the next round of them. And there was an amazing amount of time spent on what colors we should do. We did five colors. We licensed this song from an old Rolling Stones album called Colors, with uh, that has a piano intro and it's do 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 do. And uh, which is one of my favorite songs of all time. And um, uh, and there was a lot of debate about which colors to do and then how hard was it logistically to do the colors. And then what was really interesting was they shipped and it wasn't at all even. Like, you know, one or two colors just dominated. Almost nobody bought the yellow one or whatever it was. It was kind of comical. Like, it was almost pointless to have the colors, but it seemed cool. Um, um, st- stepping backwards again into into saving the company because obviously the iMac yeah, right uh, the iMac is sort of one of the things that helps save it but um, strategic thinking like uh, I read a, an interview with Heidi Roizen where she said that when Steve came back he didn't necessarily have a plan but then also there's that famous you know four quadrant chart we're going to simplify down everything to you know one entry level computer one pro computer one entry level uh, laptop one pro laptop. So um, from your yeah, recollection, the two by two grid. Right, right, exactly. Yeah. From your recollection, yeah. w- was there a, a particular strategy that he came in with or was it just sort of? Yeah, yeah. Well, to, yeah. yes, he basically decided that they were trying to do, you know, they were almost broke. Right. And so there were two parts of the strategy on sort of the supply side. One part was make and sell lots of high margin computers, mostly towers, but also uh, expensive laptops. Right. And two. Um, get simplify the product line drastically and you'll be able to get rid of people and make it successful. So they went from 17 hardware product lines to four. Uh, and he would always talk about that. And that was where the two by two grid came from, where one dimension was pro or versus consumer and the other was desktop versus laptop. And you have to remember in those days, desktops outsold laptops. And so it was kind of novel to focus much on laptops. So they did the iMac. It was a very low margin computer they're making a lot of money on towers with power with G3s and G4s in them, and on the t- the titanium power book, which was a big hit. And then um, he, they introduced the iBook, which was sort of a if you look at a picture of an iBook, it's really ugly and stupid, but it was novel, so it sold fairly well. You know, not the 
original white MacBook with the original iBook was this curvy thing that looked like kind of a like a pancake version of an iMac, and it was it really is sort of stupid looking, but it sold pretty well. And then then he did the Cube, which was a huge mistake. Uh, and the Cube, most people don't know about this. The, the idea behind the Cube was to have the little box, the Cube, and then have this new high-speed bus for all the peripherals, which today is a really good idea, but was ahead of its time in 2000. And they never finished the bus, so they just shipped the thing without any external connectivity, right? without any slots. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And then it ended up being kind of expensive, and nobody bought it, but it was pretty. So you mentioned that you, you were sitting in on some of the um, the marketing campaigns as well. Um, so, oh, yeah, all of them. Right. Yeah. So uh, yeah. tell me just the, the evolution of the Think Different campaign, because that also was, was key to, to turning around Apple's uh, fortunes in terms of, you know, getting people to realize, hey, we're, we're back to doing our best stuff. Okay, so this is kind of funny. So I was still working at StarWave in, I believe it's early 98. The Think Different campaign runs in 98. And what happens is, I get a phone call from Steve and he says, Hey, I need your help. And I, you know, I wasn't working there. I was still running Starwave. And he goes, I need your help. I'm working on this ad campaign and uh, we're having an argument about something. And I need your help. And I go, sure. So he goes, this guy, you don't know named Lee Clow is going to call you. And um, I want you to look at something and tell me what you think. I go, okay. So Lee Clow calls me and he's kind of, we now are really good friends, but he was kind of pissed off. He knew who I was, but he didn't know me. And he was like, okay, Steve wants me to do this, blah, blah, blah. And so they had the Think Different commercial, you know, here's to the crazy ones. They had it done, and they were arguing about who should narrate it. So he goes, I'm going to send you both versions. And in 1998, to send me both versions meant they had to FedEx, sorry, do a satellite uplink and then burn to a VHS or a DVD. I can't remember which. I think it was a VHS. The... um the clip. And so they did this thing to the Seattle office. They, they messengered it over to my office in Bellevue. The whole thing probably cost a thousand dollars just to do. Right. And so anyway, this VHS code shows up and I stick it in my TV in my office and I watch both versions of think different. The first version is Steve narrating it. And the second version is Richard Dreyfuss narrating it. And the agency wanted Steve to narrate it. They thought it would be cool. Kind of like Lee Iacocca. Remember, I, I built the K yeah, car. Yeah, you know, yeah. Christ goes back. And Steve didn't really want to do it. And he didn't want to do it mostly because he didn't like to exploit his fame, which is not what most people think, but he really didn't. And he, he was self-conscious of the fact that Apple hadn't really made it back yet. So it'd be kind of like pumping your chest. You know, it'd be like some, you know, washed up rocker pimping his new group or something, right? You know, so anyway... And they really wanted to do it for all the obvious reasons. And I listened to it and they kind of, they kind of said, it's up to you. Like he, he did that thing where he wanted to let somebody else decide so he wouldn't take the heat kind of, you know? So they sort of, maybe he just did this to be cute, but it was positioned to me like you're going to decide it, Mike. And I'm like, okay. <laughs> so anyway, I liked the Richard Dreyfuss version way better just because I like his voice better. Steve's voice can be a little, could be a little squeaky at the high end, right? He'd get kind of like that. Yeah, you know, yeah. He'd be all excited. And I, Richard Dreyfuss has a wonderful voice. He's one of my favorite actors. And I was like, you know, forget about all this other stuff, Lee. It's just a better commercial, right? It's still a good commercial. There's, you have zero chance of someone being distracted by the fact of is it Steve or not, which is not the reason you're doing the commercial. You're doing the commercial because it's a great commercial. So just do it. And so they did do Richard Dreyfuss. I don't know how much 
I don't know how much credit to take for it, but that's what happened. And it was pretty funny. So by the time I got there, they all knew me from this incident, right? <laughs> like, oh, you're that guy, right? So we would sit in all these meetings and, you know, and go over all the ad campaigns, some of which were pretty mundane. And, you know, one of the things people forget is that before Think Different, or maybe about the same time, sorry, right after Think Different, they did this ad campaign for the towers where they made fun of Intel, mm. where they, they, taught, they had this thing with tank. It was really a cornball, techie speeds and feeds ad about how Motorola chips were faster than Intel chips. And it was all just so they could sell those high margin towers because they, uh, they made a couple thousand bucks a tower on those. And that way, um, you know, when Steve came back to Apple, they had almost no cash. And a couple years later, they had $4 billion in cash. Uh, and, you know, so, yeah, go ahead. and that was all from selling those high end towers. That's all it was. So, right. When they, when they suddenly have profitability again, like that, that first time he walks off the stage, Oh, by the way, we're profitable. <laughs> those, well, it wasn't were, just that. It yeah. was that they were high margin. Right. Yeah, and so yeah. the, the Apple was emphasizing all these weird product lines. And he was like, we just got to sell some high margin towers. You know, they were, they would always sell three or 400,000 towers a year. And, you know, you can do the math couple thousand dollars of gross margin a tower that's a lot of money right and so um that's how they built the balance sheet back up in a couple of years and also some much smarter management of inventory and supplies and stuff and so by the time all those strategic things were happening like you know music ipod you know everything iphone everything they already had four billion dollars of cash in the bank and so you could have lost a hundred million dollars a quarter for 40 quarters. Right. So mm -hmm. they didn't, there was no doubt of its survival anymore. One of the funny things is that people always think of the Microsoft investment was the key to their survival. It was only 150 million bucks. They made more than that in any quarter, just in cash flow mm -hmm. from selling towers. So it was kind of a symbolic thing when they did that investment. Uh, and then of course the irony was Microsoft CFO, Greg Maffei hedged it. So they didn't make any money on it. <laughs> they didn't <laughs> Oops. Yeah. But anyway, so the the key was those those towers in terms of getting the company stabilized. Before we move on from marketing, uh, were you around for the the Mac versus PC guy, or was that after after your time? Well, well, what happened was is that we did a lot of product oriented advertising from '98 to like '03, and we did a lot of some other like tactical stuff. We did a couple of music ads and stuff, but a lot of it and the original couple of iPod ads, which were very People forget how, how sort of straightforward the first iPod ad. It was a picture of a, a video of a guy in an apartment listening to his music on his laptop and then plugging in his iPod and leaving with the same music. And, it, and the, the tagline was just a thousand songs in your pocket. There were no dancing girls or anything. Um, and so um, but this guy, James Vincent, was kind of the account exec. You know, normally an ad agency has a bunch of guys in suits and then the creative guys get to come and go. And the suits do most of the talking to the CEO or the guy in charge. And Steve didn't want that. So he was sort of the VP of marketing and he just had Lee cloud, the chief creative officer for all of the conglomerate and his team come up each week. And then this one guy, the only non-creative or media person that got to come to the meeting was this guy, James Vincent, who's a really smart British guy who was kind of younger and hipper and didn't really act like an account exec, even though he was nominally an account exec. So we would have these brainstorming meetings and, and he and I, James Vincent and I were the two guys who were pushing Steve to compare Mac to Windows. This, is, this never really was relevant until Vista. Once Vista came, it was such a disaster. Mm -hmm. And by this time, Mac OS X 
had A, shipped, and B, by its second rev, was kind of useful and apps are being ported to it. So it wasn't embarrassing to talk about our platform because Mac OS 9 was, it would crash all the time and it was old school technology. And it, you know, honestly, wasn't as safe or as stable as Windows, right? But Mac OS 10 was. So once we got to that point, we were like, we should really play up this notion that people are switching and they like it. And you may remember before Mac versus PC, there was an ad campaign called Switchers where they hired a guy, I was around for this, they hired a guy, a famous documentary filmmaker, and he did all these interviews with people who had switched from PC to Mac. And they talked, his name was Errol Morris. He's Errol a very Morris, famous yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, and so those ads, James and I kind of cooked up the whole process for them, and they did this series of interviews with people, and those are kind of the precursor of Mac versus PC, because they were very vivid ads, right? And then they kind of realized that why do, why do it with people? Why don't you just hire actors? They're <laughs> better, right? <laughs> and so Mac versus PC was sort of the son of that campaign in a way, if you think about it. It was the same message, right? Yeah. Uh, directly compare, right? Uh, blah, blah, blah. So uh, I don't remember. I think Mac versus PC is after I left. Yeah. But that was kind of James's baby. All right, so um, to, to jump back in time again, because we're going to try to get into the iPod here. Um, this is a story that I read, so you can either fill in the gaps for me or you can correct me if, if it's wrong. But uh, at CES in, in 2000, uh, Bill Gates gives a keynote, and he outlines, like, computers becoming home media centers. Digital hub. The digital, the digital hub, hub. hub story. And, yeah, so, that's right. and so after this, there's an off-site executive staff meeting or something, and you basically... That's a, there was an off-site okay. at the Palo Alto Garden Court Hotel. That's right. And, I was at it. And right. so you pitched this to Steve as... The, I did. Okay, I, go ahead. I, I basically, yeah, so this is a true story. So what happened is Bill gives the keynote at CES. I think it's 2001. I don't, I don't know. We could look it up, whatever year it is. It's either 2000 or 2001. And... He says the digital hub, blah, 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 blah. Um, and, you know, Microsoft has been doing this forever. And it was a really good pitch, except they didn't really have any of it, right? And so I, we were in this offsite, and I, I basically regurgitated the pitch, right, using my unique talent of irony. And, um, and everybody instantly realized the point, which was that since Apple was always the creator's computer, right, they should be the one that was the digital hub, not Microsoft, right? And it'd be easy for us to do because we already had iMovie and, you know, it was sort of a layup to do all these apps and connect things to a Mac, blah. This was before the iPod. And so it was, the the idea came from, I won't take credit for the idea of doing the digital hub. I'll take credit for the idea of laying the spark by, because my one of my jobs at Apple was to be the Microsoft kind of guru, right? So I would always sort of like, know what was going on for my friends. Because in those days, I still had a lot of friends that worked at Microsoft, and I'd know what they were doing and what was going right and what was going wrong. And I would, like, for example, it took me like two years to get Apple to have good, ex good support for Exchange servers and their mail client. Because I was like, guys, there are like 200 million people using Exchange worldwide. <laughs> Everyone in business uses it, right? So, like, you should support it. None of them had ever used it, right? They didn't understand, right? So things like that. So, yeah, I regurgitated the digital hub strategy and then pointed out that they were a long way from fulfilling it and how lame their stuff was, and everybody got really excited. Um, and so that's where, that's where the apps division kind of started from, is that Cena. so C, what had happened was Cena Tomodin had supervised the buy. They, they were working on this product called Final Cut Pro. They bought from Macromedia to compete with Adobe. 
And there was a brilliant guy working on it named Glenn Reed who built a consumerized version of it called iMovie. So the iMovie project was a really radical project, as you can imagine, right? Because mm-hmm. in 1998, who would make a movie on a computer, right? Mm-hmm. So they basically took this super complicated video editing program, got it down to like five menu items and four screens, and shipped it on every iMac. And what's funny is that to make a movie then meant that you had to have a digital tape camera. There were two types of video cameras. Right. There were ones that were regular. There was a new kind called digital, but they still had little tape cassettes. Cassettes, right. And, and it had a Firewire port on it. Sony made them and other people made them. And so since every iMac had a Firewire port on it, you could hook up the camera to it. So what you do is you would make the movie. You would, you would do, make a bunch of footage with your video camera. And then instead of just looking at it, you could import it in real time, like second by second, edit the edit like crazy and add titles and credits and music and all this great stuff. And then you had this beautiful movie. And the only problem was, you know, three of them filled up your whole hard disk. Mm -hmm. And what did you do with the movie? So what you had to do was there were no DVD burners yet. You had to spool it back out to the tape Mm -hmm. second by second through this firewire interface. And Steve gave the whole executive team, a Sony digital video camera, an iMac, and a copy of iMovie before he shipped it and gave us an assignment by the, for on a Monday. He said, by next Monday, you will come back with a movie. We're going to watch everybody's movie. Mm-hmm. So we all made movies and came back, and the next week for the whole staff meeting, we just watched the movies. So we were the testers for it, the executive team. Well, and as you're pointing out, though, that's super complicated. <laughs> and, and so I almost have the it sense... It was way ahead of its time. And it was almost... It turned out to be a flawed strategy because it caused them to miss the initial ray run of Napster and CD burning. Okay, and that's exactly yeah. what I was going to say. I almost had the sense that the reason that iTunes sort of comes next is because in that Napster era... Uh, what is easy is everybody's playing around with these MP3 files on their because they're much smaller files mm-hmm. than video files. So right? yeah, so what yeah, what happens ahead. is Steve gets all excited about iMovie because you know he has little kids and we all do and we're making these well, the movies we made were mostly about how adorable our kids were, right? And then the people who didn't have kids made really funny movies like Fred Anderson, whose kids were older and away from the home. He made a movie about his cat, and I'm like, I'm like, <laughs> I'm glad I'm not you. And then I remember. Uh, Tim Cook made a movie about trying to buy a house in Palo Alto and how expensive it was. And John Rubenstein, who was single then, made the funniest movie. He had to go to IBM for some damn chip meeting in Dallas. And so he, like, made a movie about how he spent his birthday in this boring hotel room in Dallas. <laughs> so he gets up with the camera, shoots himself in the mirror, and says, Happy birthday, John. And then he goes to this meeting at IBM, turns the camera on, and says, Wish me a happy birthday, everybody. And they're all like, Turn that camera off. What are you doing? Like <laughs> That was the best movie of all, was that one, because it was so ironically funny. But anyway, so then, yeah, what happens is, meanwhile, Young kids with PCs with stickers on them are burning, ripping files off and burning them like crazy. And there's real jukebox and there's music match and all these super complicated things. And so Steve ships this thing called an iMac DV, which is a DVD player in it and has Firewire and iMovie and is, does this kludgy thing for making movies. And then we realize that it's really hard to make movies and people don't do it very often. And so they panic. The next version of the iMac has a CD read-write drive in it, which is a tray load, not a slot load, which is ugly, but cheaper and easier. And so then 
we get I, he buys iTunes, which was this guy Jeff Robbins who had worked at Apple and had left and had this whole startup. He buys his Mac Sound, jukebox Jam. program. What was it? Sound, Sound Jam? Jam right? Yeah, yeah. Sound Jam, which which was a perfectly nice program and really ugly, and they turned it into iTunes, which I was there for, which was super cool. And we're in a meeting, so they start this apps division because of this offset that you mentioned. So after I movie, they, the next one is iTunes, and so we come in to design iTunes with this code base. And Jeff is there, and Cena is there, and a bunch of designers there, and Steve's there, and I'm there, and Phil Schiller's there, or whoever's there. And um, we walk in, and you know, and all these jukebox programs were like nuclear submarines. They're really complicated, lots of dialog boxes, tons of sliders. People were kind of competing on how many features they had, right? So it was so geeky. So Steve walks in, and he goes, one screen, no dialog boxes. That's all he says. He goes, one screen, no dialog boxes. And people were like, what? And that's how we designed iTunes, was from with that list of criteria. One screen, no dialogue boxes. And so what they would do, it was so interesting having worked at Microsoft where people had these long specs that they wrote, and a, a priest would toil in the corner writing this sacred spec, and then you shall, you shall implement the spec according to the spec, and thou dost not protest or deviate from the spec. The spec was what Steve liked, and so they'd do these really expensive color printouts of screens, and he picked the ones he liked and didn't like, and then we just kind of implement it. And there, you know how in the original iTunes, it still has it today, there's a series of sliders up on top yeah, that yeah. says like genre, artist, song, album, right? Right. Well, that's, that's called the list view, and it was invented in Next Step. No computers had that until Next Step. And I argued vociferously to put it in iTunes. And Steve didn't want to have it. He just wanted to have a scrolling list of songs that you could click on the columns to sort them. And I was like, that'll be too long. And he goes, no, people will just search. And I was like, no, people would love to go click, click, click. And I like couldn't get him to do it. He thought it was ugly and it would be- muck up his beautiful one screen, simple user interface, which you know, he had the right idea, which is to keep it radically simple. But this was really a powerful feature and easy to use. And so I finally one day just threw a tantrum. I was like a real shithead. Mm-hmm. I, just, I insulted him. I yelled. I was like moaned. I got cynical and I got it in. <laughs> well, sometimes I've, kind of people say that he, re- he responded to if you, uh, if you kind of yeah. fought back on him. That's what, that's what happened. So anyway, but then they did this thing where they totally pivoted. There's a great commercial they did where there's a bunch of people in a concert hall. They have all these famous musicians to sort of simulate what it's like to put together a playlist. And they had this commercial, this ad campaign called Rip, Mix, Burn. I remember it well. Did you remember this? Oh, oh, yeah. yeah. And, so, and everybody got mad about it. And the reason they got mad about it, including Michael Eisner, is that people thought RIP meant rip off. Mm-hmm. What RIP really means is raster image process. And it means digitize an analog source, right? Mm-hmm. That's what it means. So RIP does not mean rip off. Right, right. So nobody got that in Hollywood because they're a bunch of morons. Well, they, so were in, Steve, they were in the midst of the Napster panic freak out. I know, I know. And so anyway, you're like, no, you moron. It means take the CD you already bought and put them in the <laughs> So anyway, they did that, and then the iPod came after that. Well, at, all right. At the same time, we were working on iPhoto. Those two things sort of came around the same time. Well, let me, let's, let's not yeah, yada yada but, over that. Let's, um, do you remember 
hearing uh, first hearing of the of the iPod project because people that weren't there. It, they find it a little funny that iTunes came before iPod, but it seems logical. Like you, after you organized your songs, were burning CDs. Yes, right. of course. Well, so what happened was that Steve, once he realized that the the iMovie strategy was flawed, um, he he got really into music. And so I remember there was a meeting with Mark Levinson. Mark Levinson is famous as an audio designer, and he used to be married to the woman on Sex and the City. Uh, what's her name? Kim um, Cattrall. Yes, he used to be married to Kim Cattrall. Yeah. So, so he was like he was kind of a like a, a show horse. So he came to Apple one time with this company. He had he had a company called Mark Levinson Audio, and he lost control of it. And he had a new company that had a different name, even though his name was Mark Levinson. And he wanted Steve to buy it. And so there was this discussion about buying it and getting into high-end audio and making speakers and everything. And uh, instead, so they, Steve was like, we got to do something in music. Music's the key, blah, 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 blah. And so cause he was always looking for the next great thing. You know, being 3% market share wasn't really enough for him, right? Even though the Mac at this point was stable, but it was never going to get to 50% market share. Windows was too entrenched. So they decided not to do that. And then out of that, the, I, the what happened, see, the thing that people don't really realize is that Three things were already happening that got you sort of halfway to the iPod. The first was every Mac shipped with a FireWire port in it. Mm -hmm. And in fact, Fred Anderson would yell in the staff meeting that it was 50 bucks a unit and it was killing our gross margin on the iMac because no one used it. So the FireWire port was the thing that Apple and Sony co-invented that was about the same speed as USB 2.0, only there wasn't USB 2.0 in those days. All there was was USB 1.0, which was really slow. So it was really fast, and when you plugged something into it, it charged the device at the same time, which today seems like no big deal, but was magic then. Right. Mm -hmm. So other than Apple, the only places where you saw FireWire were on most Sonys, although they used a different implementation that didn't have power, and on a few high-end PCs that had a card installed in them. So there, because every Mac had FireWire, starting with the towers and then the laptops and the iMac, there was this whole class of devices people used around Apple that were 20 and 40 and 5 and 10 and 20 and 40 gig, uh, megabyte hard disks, gigabyte hard disks that plugged into the FireWire ports. They didn't have a power cord. So they were about twice the size of an iPod. Right. I had one. And yeah, yeah you remember this, <laughs> yeah, right? And yeah, people yeah. would have their music libraries on them. I used to get an entire music library from somebody, he'd just hand it to me. Right. 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 And you could boot a Mac off of it. So you could, if you had different code, you were going to show it to someone, you could boot off of that disk and everything. So it's kind of like having a computer in your pocket, right? Because it was, it didn't have a power cord. You could just plug it into the Mac and it automatically booted up and was powered on and had a high speed transfer rate. So lots of people would say to themselves, God, if only this thing had a user interface, right? Because there already were a disc man, you know, where people had these things where they could burn, instead of burning a 17-song CD, they could burn a digital uh, CD with a couple hundred songs on it arranged in folders, right? So you could do that, and you still see cars that have that user interface for what folder, what catalog, right? So you could have a couple hundred songs on a disc, or you could have a, a really low-capacity digital music player that a bunch of people, Creative Labs, Nike, all these people made, and they all had little tiny amounts of flash memory in them. So maybe they held 20 or 40 songs, right? 
You remember all this, right? And they were all USB 1.0. They weren't powered, and they were slow to load, but they were kind of cool. So there was already a company, Creative Labs, making a hard disk-based player. It was about the size of a discus. It had a 5-gigabyte hard disk in it. Okay, guess what? I had had that also. (laughs) Okay, you had it. So... And although it wasn't that bad from a, it wasn't that heavy, but it had two big problems. One was the software was just horrible. It was, yes. I don't know if it was Music Match or worse. And the second thing was it had USB 1.0, which meant it took like all day to load, right? Like literally all day, like ten hours. You right? just loaded it once and then never tried to load it again. But right. it's just so the combination of knowing about FireWire and knowing about these discs meant that the notion of what an iPod could be wasn't all that novel. I'm not trying to minimize the uniqueness of it. I'm just trying to say that the idea of doing it didn't seem crazy. It seemed like a logical next step. So then what happened is, and this has been written about, you know, Rubenstein would always go to uh, China and Japan and see all the vendors. And usually it was like, I have a new hard disk. It's bigger. It has more capacity and it's faster and blah, blah, blah. So instead, they, Toshiba said, you know, typical strange Japanese company, we have a hard disk that isn't bigger and isn't faster, but it's smaller. And normally you'd say, like, well, who cares, right? They all fit in laptops anyway. But this was the hard disk that ended up in the original iPod. So it was, it was radically smaller, and it, didn't, it wasn't as fast, but it didn't really matter. It was a 5-gig hard disk. And so that's where the idea came from, was from what can we do with this disk given what's already going on in the industry, right? So if you think about the first iPod from the standpoint of it required a Mac, it wasn't a Mac and PC product, right? right. It totally changes what you could do and where you would, your mindset would kind of come from, if you know what I mean. Because mm-hmm. you'd like, oh, yeah, well, I already know about FireWire, so it doesn't need power, and I can assume it connects quickly, and I already have iTunes, right? So off we go. So that's where it came from. Now, I didn't spend a lot of time with the teams. I knew it was coming. Steve told me about it. And I remember when Phil, Phil brought in – so Phil was always kind of a gadget freak. And Phil brought in a Bang & Olufsen remote because he was one of those guys. Mm-hmm. We all remember those kinds of people who had Bang & Olufsen gear. Right? Mm-hmm. You kind of roll your eyes at them like, geez, really? You know? So he had all sorts of B&O gear, and the B&O remote – looked an awful lot like the scroll wheel and the iPod. Mm. Like exactly like mm. it. Mm. <laughs> and guess who never patented it? <laughs> you know. Right. So that's where it came from, is that Phil loved those remotes, and they had a little scroll wheel, a mechanical scroll wheel, like to navigate channels or whatever, right? Or volume or whatever. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, the, the, you can all read about Tony Fidel and the team and licensing the heart, the strange operating system and everything. But, you know, that's where it came from. And then probably the most interesting thing I was involved in was what to call the damn thing, mm. right? Because they couldn't make up their mind what to call it. You know, should it be called Tune Man or I Tune This or, you know, everything? And Steve was kind of adamant about it not being uh, labeled as a music player because mm. he thought it was kind of a crappy category. Mm. So he, he agitated for the word not to be Tune or Tune Man or Walkman or whatever, the agency came up with Pod, not mm-hmm. Steve. Mm-hmm. Day came up with it from a long list. And in retrospect, the iPart was kind of obvious because it was iMac and iBook and 
we, you know, et cetera, et cetera. So, but the pod was really brilliant. Mm-hmm. Well, uh, it, and that's that. It's that it's that analogy of the of the hub. It's a pod off of the mothership, basically. Yeah. Yeah. Sure. That's right. That's right. That's right. So, uh, and then you know, the first ad I always tell people is my one of my favorite Apple ad ever because it's such a make love to the product, cram a lot into an ad, explain, take. Apple didn't do a we have a better iPod ad. They did it. This is a brand new category you never heard of ad, right? Right, right. That first ad to me is brilliant on so many levels, right? Because it, it shows the software, it shows how to use it, but the benefit is the guy walks off with music, a thousand songs in his pocket, and you're mm-hmm. like, holy shit. Oh, you know, okay. So I used to I used to fly, you know, I flew every week on Alaska Airlines from Seattle to San Jose and back, sometimes twice a week. And I was always in first class. Thank you, Steve. And I was always talking to stewardesses, and they knew me because I did it so often. And I had this, all of a sudden, I had this iPod. And they were like, I mean, they thought it was like, no one, it wasn't that they thought it was cool. No one understood what it was. But they're like, what is that? Mm-hmm. Like, what do you mean? You show it to them, and you turn the wheel, and they go, huh? And you show them all thousand songs, and I loaded the thing up. And people just looked at you like you were a magician. Like there's no way this is possible. <laughs> um, two two more things, and then I'll let you go. That I want you to see, uh, hear your perspective on uh, around this story around the iPod and iTunes. Um, the first being, you know, famously, Jobs didn't want to open up uh, iTunes to to PC users. Um, he said it was him against everyone else. Do you remember any of those arguments about? Listen, Steve, we got to take this to everybody. Sure. I mean, the thing you have to realize is that all people cared about was selling more iMacs, right? The right. iMac wasn't selling that well. So is that is that literally the 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 argument that Steve is like, no, we can use this to sell more Macs, or what? Well, like, the original the, the original idea was that this will sell more Macs and it'll be a virtuous circle, right? And then, um, and we sold a fair amount even the first quarter, right? And so then what happened was that um, people. Not so much me, although I was uh, I was on in the camp as well. But other people, like Greg Joswiak and stuff, and other people were agitating that it would be easy to sell it in the PC. And you got to remember, it took two years before iTunes got ported to the PC. Right. The iPod shipped in October of 2001, a month after September 11th, and the version with the store and iTunes on Windows wasn't until late 03. So, in between. They had this horrible hack solution, which is why Steve didn't like it, which was that you they they got Music Match to come in and pitch them. I got my buddies at Real Networks to come in and pitch them. They picked Music Match partly because uh, Steve had this thing in the license agreement that said that whoever the party was that did the deal couldn't ever use the word syncing. Hmm. <laughs> he wanted to have rights in perpetuity to, to syncing things. <laughs> Like I was such a naked power grab and realized that we're not doing this deal. And music match was like, sure, we'll do anything. Right. So they did music, but, but so it was a horrible solution. It had this crappy software called music match and you had to have a PC with a firewire card on it or a Sony PC. Right. Which almost nobody had. Well, I so, did because again, I guess I'm, all I'm over... just saying <laughs> yeah. you're a geek, right? Yeah, yeah, so yeah. I'm saying, you know, it was not mainstream at all. I had right? a Sony and, laptop that had the firewire. Yep. Mm-hmm. Right. Right. And Sony sold lots of laptops. But anyway, so I think Steve didn't like it for two reasons. One was he thought it would sell Macs, which wasn't really true. He didn't realize it could be such a big thing on its own. And two, 
he thought it would be yucky, which it was, right? At that part, he was right about it. It was really yucky, right? And it was, it, it was, the PC solution was vulnerable to somebody doing it better, whereas the Mac solution wasn't, right? Well, she never liked those things, right? Mm-hmm. He didn't want to do something unless it was great. But then, you know, he changed his mind. It wasn't that many months after shipment that they did the thing. So he came around pretty quickly, partly because it was selling well, right? Yeah. You know, once it was selling well, he was like, oh, my God, I can sell this to PC users. This is great. You know, finally I have, a, you know, an opening to Windows, right? Uh, the other thing, because we've, we've already kind of uh, glanced on it, is um, doing the store. Again, people are like, wait, iTunes was around before you could actually buy things, buy songs on it. Um, were you privy to any of those negotiations? Like with the Sure. Oh, yeah. That, that, that took a long time. Um, Steve wanted to do that from the moment the iPod shipped. And I was in some meetings with the record labels and stuff in, in 01 and 02 where they were like just – they remember they did this these two brain dead joint ventures music match and what was the other one one was music match was like sorry not music match music what was it called music net mm-hmm. and it was universal and maybe warner and real networks and then the other one was sony and so, anyway it right was the, a, the point it, was is that they weren't all on board one platform no they each 60 yeah. were on one it was just stupid and they had all these restrictions on you couldn't they basically made it impossible for the consumer to have any fun right it was like the nfl and so those things already and that's what they thought was the right strategy we weren't going to let steve jobs snooker us or anybody else and then about the time i left he and eddie q and cena figured out that if they made it Mac only, it might be a palatable experiment for people. You know, the thing that helped them a lot was that their things had already flamed out. So in between 01 and 03, their things were such colossal failures, right? That that got them more open-minded about doing something else, right? And of course, Steve is, you know, once Steve gets involved, you know, by this time, Pixar was really successful and, you know, people want to hang out with Steve. Even if he can be rude, people just are, he was a very sexy and charismatic guy to be with. And so all else being equal, you'll do the thing Steve tells you to do just because he's so charismatic, right? Never fails. Well, and at that point, it's almost helpful that he can be thought of as a Hollywood mogul like them. Like he's coming well, as an by, by 2003, he was. Right, look exactly. at the Pixar track record by then. That's right. He knew more than they did. That's right. You know, Pixar was making more money than they were. So, yeah, that all helped. And, you know, and, and he is legitimately was that smart. So, um, but there was not a new idea. It was always the idea, right, to sell songs. It was just hard to get the deal done, right? And he did it brilliantly. Well, I mean, however, specifically to sell songs individually, was there a lot of pushback on that? Because they, you know, they're trying to protect the... Well, but that's a classic example of Steve using the fact that their thing had failed to um, leverage his own... Uh, insane demand for simplicity, you know, like 99 cents. He didn't want a dollar. He wanted 99 cents. And his whole thing was he thought correctly that albums were a ripoff. You know, every stoner who bought an album knows that of the 12 songs on it, three or four are filler or sometimes nine or 10 are filler. Right. So he knew that. Right. And he, he thought it would be simpler to just have 99 cents a song. And that way you wouldn't have to spend very much money and you could be approachable and everything. So yeah, mostly he was just a guy who loved simplicity more than anything else. And any sort of like, Oh, well for this, it's that. And this, it's that. And on Tuesdays, it's that. He just hated that stuff. Right. He hated it. Like, a, like, mm-hmm. you know, 
it was the same reason why he wanted to open his own stores is that he hated the experience of going into somebody else's store and seeing them messing up his beautiful marketing. Right. And, and, and giving the margin to do it. Like, why should right. I give these guys 12 points and just add no value to subtract value? You know? Um, so same thing, the love of simplicity. Well, uh, final question then. So you leave around 2004 and yeah, I left when he got sick. So what happened was he came into my office shut the door and he said can I talk to you and I go sure and he goes he goes I have pancreatic cancer I'm gonna die and I'm like what and he started crying and then you know it was a really heavy duty moment and then that was on a Monday and then on Tuesday he comes back in my office and he goes I don't have pancreatic cancer mm. and I'm like what the fuck and he goes I have this other kind of tumor called an islet cell tumor which is rare but treatable blah blah blah, blah, blah. so he then Stopped going to work. It was a secret. So from late 03 to mid 04, he went to work about a day a week and no one knew it was a big secret. And he did everything but surgery. He did acupuncture and all sorts of stuff and it didn't work. And then he finally agreed to have surgery in the summer of 04. And so once he started work, stopped going there all the time, I stopped going there because my job was to be with him kind of, right? And then when he got well, we were both kind of like, well, you know, mm-hmm. you know, the company doesn't need a change agent as much anymore, you mm-hmm. know, so we kind of mutually agreed to stop it. I did it for about six years. Well, and but that's, that was going to be my final question. So it's this era, 2004, 2005, where, where you know, I, I think it's around then they dropped computer from their name. So sort of my question is, is, you know, as you're observing this, a company that had only done computers for, what, 20, 25 years, and then now is in the, the media business selling songs, is now in the com- consumer electronics business. or what, what, Just from your perspective, um, the evolution of Apple into something that's more than just we make computers, was that... Was that because of, of the iPod? Right, and, the iPod completely. And was yeah. it an organic change? Was it like sort of okay? Wow, if we can do this, maybe we can do these other things. Maybe we should do camcorders. Yeah, you know. So, so the the funny thing is that not really by design, the iPod and the retail stores launched like the same month, right? Just by coincidence, kind right? Of. Right. So, and the iPod slowly but surely becomes a monster hit. Like I remember after a couple of quarters doing a couple of spreadsheets for Steve about some other project we were working on. And I was like, I said to him, you know, look, if you, if this and this happened, the iPod could be a billion dollar business. And at the time Apple was about a $7 billion, $8 billion revenue run rate company. And they were kind of flat. Right. Mm -hmm. And I was like, and he was like, you know, come on. I'm like, well, look, you know, and it was only like a couple of X, couple of X bump from where they were already. Right. So you could see even after a couple of quarters that they could be, it could be a billion dollar business. And once something's a billion dollar business, it could be anything. Right. Mm-hmm. And so the, and the iPod, and as you point out, after a few months that they sold it on windows. And even though a mere mortal might not have been able to figure it out, lots of people did. Right. And so you could go into the Apple store and buy something that didn't require Mac OS 10. Right which is a big deal mm-hmm. because most people had windows 95% of the world had windows. So that was a really big deal. And so, and then you see them kind of get more aggressive. You know, I remember being in the meeting where Steve showed us the video of 50 cent singing that he was a motherfucking PIMP while he was holding an iPod. <laughs> <laughs> and he was like telling him how much we paid for it. And he's kind of shaking his head like, Oh Jesus. <laughs> so, 
so you know it was already happening right in o two o three as right. the iPod became more and more successful and and equally important sold to people who'd never bought anything from Apple before that's the thing people kind of forget is that the even though its creation never would have happened without it being mac only you know pretty quickly it 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 you know it grew and gave people a different way to feel about it. It was the first time they ever beat Microsoft at anything, right? Mm-hmm. Since, you know, 1985. So it had this double benefit of making you confident about their ability to grow as a company, right? Right. And, and, and in lots of different ways. Like it had such a psychological impact that, that they realized that it, it's not, we're not just a Mac business. We're an anything we want to do business if we can do it right. Well, and the other thing, the thing people don't, a lot of people forget is that way before the iPhone, Remember, a bunch of people started competing with the iPod. So SanDisk and all these people were making, you know, little hard disk-based players. Because remember, after the iPod gets to 5 and 10 and 20, you get the Mini. Remember the Mini? Right, of course. The Mini was a hard disk-based player with a 2- and 4-gig drive, not not a flash-based drive. And then everybody Multiple started doing also. Yeah, and everybody started doing those because they had lower cogs. And even though the libraries weren't as big, it was an approachable price point. So then Apple blows everybody away with the Nano. And so this is all Tim Cook. This is Tim Cook figuring out that if you use your market power, you can take Flash, which at the time was like buying gold. It was so expensive, right? And you can drive the price down. And they cornered the market on Flash that year. They did this crazy forward buy on Flash. And so mostly through supply chain work, not through anything else, they totally changed the market. And overnight, Flash went from an exotic thing that only geeky, rich people bought for in small quantities to like a mainstream thing. Remember the Nano? What a big deal Absolutely. the Nano was. It was so small. And that's all Tim Cook. That's all, that's all uh, supply chain wizardry. Well, and not only Steve does... was sick then. Not only does that keep the price down, but then it, it, it prevents others from coming into the space. You, you don't no, have because they locked up the supply of right, Flash right. for like over a year. That's right. That's, that's what I mean, is that in addition to driving the price down, they did two things. It was this gutsy move, because what if it hadn't sold well, right? And in addition to that, um, it blew away the competition. So in one fell swoop, they started acting like Microsoft used to act, right, as a company with market power. Well, and, and that the, was a huge deal. Actually, the third thing is when you think about it, though, it's also that because the 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 mini was the best seller of of the iPods of that era, so that's that first move of we're going to eat our young, we're going to innovate you know, ourselves. And, well, and the other thing that's funny is that Steve tried to cancel the mini twice. <laughs> so the mini, Steve thought two and four was too small, right? Of a of a music library, the people had five, tens, and twenties, right? And so. He tried to cancel it twice before it shipped, and Rubenstein basically ignored him. <laughs> he he just ignored his his pleas to cancel it, and then, and I remember I said to him, I was like being kind of cynical. I was like, um, "It's so good looking. Who cares? Don't don't ever. It's just pretty. People will buy it because it's cute." And that's that you know, it, it, a, that became true. <laughs> oh no, I was right. It just seems sort of like at the time it seemed like a really cynical thing to say, right? You know, like but it was true. <laughs> So cute, right? But anyway, and then the Nano just blew it away, right? I was looking at the Nano. The Nano was September 7th, 2005. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And that was the first Flash-based, um, let's see, um, he pulled it out of his, jean, his watch pocket. The remember? small in pocket the in the jeans, right, right, right. He, yeah, he, he says, he says uh, something like, I, I, I always wondered what this pocket was for. 
Right, right. And it was, uh, let's see, the first one, um, one, two, and four. Yeah, right. Unbelievable. So anyway, that's a really big deal to me. That's probably, even though they were working on the iPhone, sort of the moment I always thought when Apple arrived is this company that wasn't just doing well, but was like dominating a category, right? They left all those other guys flat-footed, right? Well, uh, Mike, uh, that once again, uh, I'm so glad that you agreed to come back and do this because that those oh, are sure. all the juicy stories that that I was hoping for. Yeah, there's probably more, but yeah, yeah, that's, yeah, yeah. Uh, but um, right, but that, that, that that's kind of what I was living. Right? Yeah. Well, Mike Slade, thanks for coming back on the Internet History Podcast and um, just amazing stuff. Thanks. You bet. My pleasure. All right, talk to you later. If this is the first time you're listening to this podcast, please subscribe to us on your podcast app of choice. There's plenty more great internet history where that came from. And if you're a longtime listener, then you know what to do to help us out. Rate and review us on iTunes. Because iTunes gives credit to reviews and ratings, and the more great reviews we get, the more people will discover us. As always, there's more info on our website, www.internethistorypodcast.com. The show's Twitter handle is at nethistorypod, and my personal Twitter is at Brian MCC. Thanks for listening.